0: Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron.
1: Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street. And this is the very first episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, a weekly podcast about lawyering and law practice. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, using your favorite podcast app, or you can listen to it at lawyerist.com/podcast. Today's interview with Alan Dershowitz is about his book Letters to a Young Lawyer and his advice for young lawyers, and it is brought to you by Viewable. Viewable is a new way for clients and attorneys to work together. It's cloud-based and it gives attorneys and their clients the tools to communicate better, so they are on the same page throughout the billing process all the way up to the final invoice. And Viewable helps lawyers and clients build better relationships. It's a cool product, and I'll talk a little bit more about it later.
0: And after the interview, we'll be answering a question from our audience. And today's first question is whether it makes sense for attorneys to offer a 100% satisfaction guarantee to their clients.
1: So, Alan Dershowitz wrote letters to a young lawyer nine years ago before the economy went down the toilet and took the legal market with it. So as I was reading it, I wondered how Professor Dershowitz might want to update his advice now for young lawyers in 2014. Here is what he had to say. I'm Sam Glover, and with me I have Professor Alan Dershowitz. Uh, Newsweek has called you the nation's most peripatetic civil liberties lawyer and one of its most distinguished defenders of individual rights. Every time I look you up, I, I see that quote. So either you like it or people like to apply it to you. Uh, how would you describe yourself? What's your your short bio that you give when you're forced to give one?
2: Well, I'm peripatetic. I am all <laughs> over the place. I'm supposed to be retired from Harvard Law School, but I'm busier than ever. I'm involved in cases in the Ukraine in Israel and England and... Uh, you name it. Uh, and I'm, um, you know, actively involved in, uh, defending Israel against false charges. i just written a new book called Terror Tunnels, The Case for Israel's Just War Against Hamas. And, um, I'm doing a million things, enjoying it, um, living now largely in Florida, in New York rather than Cambridge. Mm-hmm. And, uh, finish, just finished 50 years of teaching at Harvard Law School where I've had 10,000 students and, uh, Uh, you know, lots of clients over the years, lots of books, so I've had a full, very full professional and personal life.
1: Yeah, you've, uh, among all of those things, you've written quite a few books, and I'd like to Mm -hmm. take you back 13 years to one, uh, called Mm -hmm. Letters to a Young Lawyer that you wrote. Oh yeah,
2: that's one of my favorites, yeah, I really, I I keep getting letters from young lawyers all over the world. That book's been published in several languages, including in several Asian languages, Mm and I love getting emails from young uh, law students in China or in Korea saying, you know, I read this chapter, that chapter, and it really resonates for me.
1: So uh, the book is about 13 years old. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let me start with the big question, which is, of all of the things that may have changed in the last 13 years, how much of it would, is there anything in that book that, you would just go ahead and change, that you just know is different. Well,
2: I would add a few chapters on how laws become a business <clears throat> and it's, you know, when I started practicing 53 years ago, it was really a learned profession. Nobody would ever talk about how much money they made. It would be like talking about your sex life and so uh, it, just, uh, it just, just wasn't done. Today, uh, law firms brag about how much money they're making, how much they're charging billable hours, um and, uh, you know, the conflicts that arise today between lawyers and clients, and, uh, uh, I, I see these conflicts arising among my, my former students, I get calls about them all the time, it is about billing, because that's the one area where there's a conflict of interest between the client and the lawyer. The lawyer wants to make the most money, and the client wants to pay the least money. And, um, you know, just to move to this issue, one of the reasons I've been consulting with this new company called Viewable is because I believe very strongly that that problem can be solved by real-time, 24-7 access to the billing process whereby the client can look at what the lawyer is doing, where they're allocating funds and um, can have input uh before rather than after instead of complaining. Uh, you can say, hey, why are you spending so much time on this? Why are you using an associate instead of a partner? So I think I would add a, a chapter on how to avoid conflicts over billing with clients, because I've seen in the last 10 years or so, that's become a major source of dispute between lawyers and clients.
1: You know, I in reading the book, I was... You spent a lot of time talking about unethical practices by lawyers, mm-hmm, and uh, one of my <laughs> one of the quotes that stuck with me is, "You would look at your class and say statistically more of you will become criminal defense uh, criminal defendants than criminal defense lawyers."
2: Unfortunately, that's been true. Yeah, yeah. Is,
1: that's still true, isn't it?
2: <laughs> it is true uh, for two reasons. One, uh, very few uh, elite law school graduates become criminal defense lawyers. Um, uh, the money isn't as good, the elitism, the prestige isn't as good. Many of them become prosecutors but that's a route to become civil lit- litigators and occasionally in any class you will find one or two or three people who ultimately call in w- what I offer them. I offer them a warranty of five years uh, time and labor and, and parts uh... if they get indicted for <laughs> anything they heard in my <laughs> class you know uh, they actually made a, a tv program about this you know how to get away with murder which is a total ripoff right. of my book reversal of fortune and a and also a uh... proposal that my son and i made to various networks over the years about how i use my students um... so uh, a, a, you do get occasionally students calling and saying I, i've had this problem and i I need you to help me. Um, and uh, it's very important that students always keep their eye on the ethical ball. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, let, right at the beginning of the book, you start talking about how difficult it is to find lawyers to take advice from. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I admit I was a little unsatisfied with your advice about how to gauge whether or not a particular lawyer is the sort of lawyer that a young, inexperienced lawyer ought to take Advice from mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm, how how do you tell how do you tell people to um, figure out whether or not this particular lawyer is worth listening to?
2: It's very very hard, very very hard because lawyers with extraordinary reputations sometimes are not all that good, and some of the best lawyers just are not very well known around. So you have to ask a lot of people um, before you can pick a mentor or somebody who you can really rely on their advice, and there has to be wide widespread consensus that this is the kind of person you can rely on. I was very lucky in my life. I had, you know, seven or eight great mentors. Um, Even though I'm now 76, I still have some. <laughs> I mean, I think the Bob Morgenthau, who is the legendary district attorney of New York and who's 95 years old. So, you know, 19 years my senior as somebody to whom I can always go for advice. Uh And um I see uh, many others like that.
1: One of the, I think you call, I'd call it a yellow flag or maybe a red flag is Um, I think you said to beware of anyone who tries to advise you to do the same sorts of things that they've done and um, to look at uh, their work product. Uh, I remember you saying that uh, there was a lawyer who was using the same provision in a brief that you submitted (laughs) for decades. Um, And
2: losing every time. Right. Uh, Or just
1: having it be ignored.
2: Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, So I I think uh, it's very important that you understand that much advice is autobiographical. Many people you ask for advice will tell you, oh, this is the way I did it, this is the way you ought to do it. But you're different from the way they are, and you have to always adapt the advice to your own passions, your own needs, your own uh, priorities, um, your own excellences. So um, it's very rare that you can take advice whole hog and just uh, uh, as if you're buying a suit off the rack. It just doesn't work.
1: I've also always been struck by the fact that Um, when we settle into our practice, I I was a civil litigator, and I I sued debt collectors, I defended people sued by debt collectors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That gives me a perspective on the law that doesn't translate well to a family lawyer or a criminal defense lawyer. Um, I agree with that. I I, agree. I mean, I think it's it's hard to take a mentor that doesn't do the same sorts of things Mm -hmm. that you do.
2: Well, my mentor, my main mentor for my career was General Telford Taylor. Nope, Two people could be any different. He was, you know, tall, handsome, waspy guy from upstate New York who had been a general in the army. Uh, but he had a career that I wanted to emulate. He was a professor at Columbia and Yale. He was a major litigator, particularly Supreme Court human rights and civil rights litigator. He had been the chief prosecutor at Nuremberg and he wrote many books, popular books about constitutional rights. So I wanted to be like Telford Taylor and, and, and I, turned out being like Telford Taylor. I mean, I emulated his life in many ways. He was very different than I was. Uh And, you know, personally, although we were close friends, um, our personal lives went in very, very different directions. But professionally, I found somebody um, who was totally different from me, but whose life I could uh, emulate more than any of my other either professors who were full-time professors or litigators who were full-time litigators. I didn't want to be full time anything. I wanted to have a career in which I touched on really all four aspects of um uh, of being a lawyer and that is, you know, being in court, being in the classroom, being a kind of public intellectual in the media on television and in the newspapers and writing serious serious books. The only thing I didn't do that he did is I never served as a government lawyer and mm-hmm. you know, part of me misses misses that. I was never a prosecutor. I've never been, uh, I've never worked for the government. I've consulted with the government on a number of cases, both state and federal governments, and I probably will consult with governments in, in future, but, uh, and I don't think of that as an incompleteness in my life. You know, there's an old, uh, Jewish expression, with one rear end, you can only dance it, uh, with, Two, you can't dance at two weddings with one rear end you can't dance at two weddings i have danced at multiple weddings and my wife is completely convinced that i have several rear ends so uh... i've tried my best to, you know participate
1: you know you uh... one of the other things in the book that struck me because um, it's it was comforting is that uh, at least 13 years ago? You said you still suffer from imposter syndrome—the feeling that you're you're never sure that you actually know what you're talking about and and that you really deserve the uh, the acclaim that you have had. You've I had think you still do.
2: Everybody does that. Okay. And, you know, uh, there's a wonderful quote I have in my new uh, autobiography. It's called "Taking the Stand," in which I quote a colleague of mine sitting around the table at Harvard Law School. This was during my last year of teaching. And I mentioned to him that Professor Alex Bickel, who had been also one of my mentors at Yale, uh, had said, uh, Alan, don't go to Harvard. You'll never fit in there. And the professor sitting across from me after 50 years of teaching at Harvard said, he was right. You never did fit in here. And, uh, you know, I don't fit in. I don't easily adapt to uh, accepting other people's values. So I was an outsider for 50 years at Harvard. I was an outsider for three years at Yale. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, my status as an outsider is something. I like, but you know, it always makes me wonder, you know, I'm not as smart as people think I am. I'm not as successful as people think I am. Uh, And so uh, I'm not a humble person by nature, but I understand (laughs) my own limitations and uh, I'm prepared to admit them to myself, if not publicly.
1: Well, it was, it was actually, that was one of the more comforting things in the book. Okay. If Alan Dershowitz has had several long and distinguished careers. Uh, has still wonders about this, then I I suppose I shouldn't feel too bad about it if I do. No, and I still
2: get nervous when I get up to speak, and I still get nervous when I get up to argue, uh whether it be in the Supreme Court or the Court of Appeals or state Supreme Court or federal court. I still, you know, have the butterflies, and, uh you know, I always want to have that. I always want to be on edge, and I'm always over-prepared for all of my arguments. I mean, I read vos- v- voraciously before an argument. I read every word in the transcript, every relevant word. I, you know, I read, read and reread the briefs and read and reread the cases. And I think I can say with confidence that in 50 years of arguing, probably had between 250 and 300 arguments, I've never been asked a question that I didn't know the answer to. I never was asked a question that I wasn't prepared. Now, you know, some sort of the questions are, are absurd. Justice Scalia in the Supreme Court once asked me a hypothetical. What if a bank robber is running away from the bank robbery and he throws his gun to the other bank robber? And says, "Here, here's a gun. Use it." Uh, is he the trigger man for purposes of the death penalty or not? I mean, who could be prepared for a question like that? But I was able to answer it. And I think you said you're no. still
1: not. You're not. You still worry about whether you answered it the right way.
2: Of course, you always worry. I mean, I saved their lives ultimately, but you always worry about whether you've answered it the same way. You know, there are always the three arguments you make in front of a court: the one you think you made, the one you made and the one you wish you made. Mm-hmm. And uh, only when you read the hard transcript do you realize, that, oh my God, I probably could have answered that question better. One of the reasons I never read my own books, I haven't read Letters to a Young Lawyer since I wrote it, hmm. is because I always am upset that I didn't write better, didn't write more. I'm extremely self-critical of my, of my own work. So um, uh, I, I get very upset when I read my own books again.
1: Uh, Um, this will be a little bit of a change in direction here, but you have an interesting perspective on work-life balance. Uh, in Mm -hmm. the book, you, you quote the old saying that nobody on their deathbed regrets working too much, but then you go on to say, well, some people probably should regret not working enough. (laughs)
2: That's right. Yeah. How how do we find the balance? Well, everybody has to strike it uh, differently. I'm very lucky because I'm extremely efficient and I get things done quickly and quietly and I have a lot of time for family. So I think I struck in my own life the proper balance. I never missed any of my kids athletic events. I never miss any of my daughter as a professional actor. I never miss any of her plays or readings. And you know, I try very hard to strike the appropriate balance between, between family and personal life. Uh, I go to a lot of theater and a lot of um, opera when I'm in New York, and but I work very, very hard. When I work, I really, really work. Um, so I think I fit the right balance, but everybody has to strike it uh, differently. And uh, you know, the ones on their deathbeds who have not been successful and might have been successful had they worked harder, I think sometimes regret that. So I don't like that cliche. I don't like very many cliches at all.
1: Yeah. I, I suppose it's decide what's important to you and make sure that you focus on those things. Um, with and the, the other thing I say across. in my book
2: is don't do what you're best at. Uh, you know, <laughs> you might be best at something, but if it doesn't bring you joy, and if you're not passionate about it, don't do it. Um, obviously, you have to be good at what you do. Otherwise, if, you know, if if I could choose what I wanted to do, it would be, you know, point guard for the Boston Celtics or a shortstop <laughs> for the Red Sox. But I can't do those things. So I noticed I have that to didn't do work out for you. Good at. That didn't work out for me too well, but, uh, you know. Uh, and I love litigation, but um, uh, I, 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 as a professor, I couldn't litigate as much as I'd like to, but now that I'm freer, I can. Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, I want to talk about Viewable for a few minutes. Sure. Um, and I, I want to start by uh, sort of easing into it because there is a quote in your book that is out of date, and I want to give you a chance to update it. And I think I know where you're going to go, but um, it is you said there's hardly a city or town in America where an ordinary citizen could safely pick an honest lawyer out of the Yellow Pages. That's right. Now, the Yellow Pages uh, are all but irrelevant these days for the purposes of legal marketing, I think. And so has this problem just gotten worse? Is Google even worse than the Yellow Pages?
2: Oh, I think it's worse. I think it's gotten worse. First, there are more lawyers. Second, there are probably more unscrupulous lawyers. Um, and, uh, And third, because with advertising, uh, you often tend to pick lawyers, you know, who are most visible, who have the signs on the way to the airport or, uh, who are on television. So it's very hard for lay people to pick good lawyers. In fact, I had recommended some students some years ago to set up a firm, uh, which would just advise corporations, business people, other people, how to find the right lawyer, how to match you with the right lawyer. It's, it's, it's a daunting challenge.
1: Uh, do you have an Avo profile? Speaking I don't of even know what it is. <laughs> well, in the book, you talked about that concept of uh, sort of, well, the, it, this is on the public side, is uh, uh, people rating other lawyers, uh, consumer ratings of lawyers. And you thought that might be a way to help sort it out. And yeah,
2: out. if it's done honestly, there's too much jealousy in the legal profession. Yeah. Though, and, and people try to, you know, uh, always find fault with people who are very successful. Uh, I, I'm I'm very happy with my peer reviews and. Um, and I'm very happy with my client reviews. My clients recommend me always to other lawyers because I'm accessible and I'm, I'm easy to, to talk to and I work very, very hard. But it's very, very difficult to find the right lawyer unless you know people you can trust.
1: So um, so I assume getting involved in Viewable must have been an opportunity to and. In- Uh, Enforce some transparency in the legal profession. Then, well, that's
2: what I've been looking to do for years and years and years. I I wrote back in 1982 that the law is a secular priesthood, in which lawyers hide behind their robes, and um, you know the original reason for wigs was that the lawyers were supposed to all be the same, and you shouldn't be able to identify them differently by their facial features. That's why they all wore the same wigs. But no. visibility and transparency is absolutely important especially in billing because that's the area where there is the most inherent conflict of interest and so uh, I like what Viewable is doing very much and you know it's, a, it's basically free avail- freely available or very very inexpensively available to clients who can then monitor what their lawyers are doing for them after all they're the clients and the lawyers performing a service there, there should be no secrets and the ability to look real time and figure out how your money is being spent, how it's being allocated, who's billing, how much billing, how much of it's overtime, all that kind of th- stuff is very important and I was brought on to make sure that there were no ethical problems and I certainly don't see any at this point because the, uh, uh, viewer bill keeps, maintains extreme confidentiality and, uh, you know, you, you the client, you, the lawyer arrange and decide what you want to have uh, available and, and, and what you don't and uh, it, it seems to me it's a win-win that any good law firm should want clients to be able to look at what they're doing in real time and to create a better sense of trust and uh, any client you know you don't have to look at it but if you have any concerns or worries uh, it gives you an ability to look at it real time and to correct the situation so i'm a big fan
1: you know when i when i first reviewed Viewable. Um, it was, I, I think I came to the same conclusion that it's a great idea and law firms should want this and so it's probably going to fail. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, when when uh, the guys at Viewbill asked me to revisit those comments because um, it hasn't failed and uh, no, and no, it has been, been a win-win. Well, yeah. It seems to have been a win-win for uh, law firms and clients, and it it sounds like uh, law firms are actually using it internally to track associates' hours
2: and it makes a lot of sense. And, you know when I first heard about it, it 's one of these ideas that you say, "Oh my god, why didn't I think of this It's so obvious, and it's such a win win for for both sides, if you're honest and uh, it's something I think every client should insist on and when i've mentioned it to uh corporations and others. They've all said, "Wow, I didn't know it existed it's a terrific idea, so you know I think it's 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 a it's a phenomenon whose time has not only come but's been long overdue
1: when when the primary barrier to adoption is just that people haven't learned of it yet, and then when they do, they want to jump on board. That's a pretty compelling uh <laughs> pretty compelling yeah, story. and I think
2: the more they learn about it, the more they want to do it. I think there's initial skepticism sometimes by some big law firms saying, Oh, we've been doing it this way for forty years, and it's worked for us." Why do we need anything new? But then, when they see what it really is, it creates a real sense of trust. And uh, you know, law firms want to have uh, trust with their clients, and they don't want the complaints afterward. They don't want a guy coming in and saying, "Oh, we think you overbilled. Reduce the bill by twenty percent." It's much easier uh, to have that negotiation in real time than after the fact when you know leverage has changed.
1: Well, and I've I've heard from clients, uh, general counsel, who are. Uh, requiring some viewable for their law firms because they want to be able to keep an eye on things are going. And it it does seem to enhance their relationships.
2: So that's the key. That's the key. If if it improves um, the quality of the relationship through transparency, then it's, you know, it's so inexpensive. It's something everybody should do.
1: So, Vuebill is in the process of rolling out some firm-facing features to help firms help themselves uh, and this winter, just coming up very soon, they're going to be releasing uh, some new legal project management features designed for firms. So it's it's expanding what it's doing and the idea is to uh, prove that Viewable can be dedicated to strengthening the attorney-client relationship. Uh, and so if you'd like to give View-A-Bill a try for a free demo, you can go to firms.viewable.com and we'll make sure that link is in the post. Professor Dershowitz, thank you so much for being with us oh, today. Oh, my
2: pleasure. What a, good, what a good interview. You asked me all the right questions and I enjoy <laughs> doing it. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Be well. Bye.
0: Hey, this is Aaron. Uh, At the end of each podcast episode, each week, uh, Sam and I are going to answer a question from you, our audience. If you'd like to submit a question for a future episode, you can email us at email at lawyerist.com or hit us up on Twitter with hashtag AskLawyerist and we'll try to incorporate good questions into future podcast episodes. Um, Since this is our first episode and none of you knew to ask us a question, Uh, we decided to uh, pull one from a different source. Um, So I'm on a listserv here in Minnesota for sole and small firm attorneys, and a friend of ours, uh, Aaron Hall, just submitted a question to that listserv a few days ago. Um, He's contemplating offering uh, an unconditional, 100% unconditional guarantee to some of his good clients. Um, and wanted some feedback on the concept of offering a guarantee. And to be clear, this is a satisfaction and price guarantee, not a, not a guarantee of the service he delivers, which of course would be unethical. Um, and so wanted to chat a little bit with you, Sam, about kind of your thoughts on offering a guarantee as part of your client service and pricing package and maybe what some of the implications of that could be or questions someone considering it should be thinking about.
1: Okay, so number one, Aaron, is a business law attorney, right?
0: Yes, yes. Mostly medium, small and medium-sized businesses.
1: Okay, so the reason I point that out is because I think it's really key because, so I practice consumer law, right? My clients were mostly people who are in debt. My idea of a fair price wasn't remotely in the same ballpark as what they would have conceived of a fair price for the legal services they were getting.
0: Since for your clients, nothing on this planet could possibly be worth $100 an hour or more.
1: Yeah, or much less 350 which was the right. rate my a judge set my rate at. So, right. <laughs> so the chances of me getting a fair rate, even on a contingent fee matter, I think were probably slim to none. But when you have somebody who's in the same ballpark and is used to paying for a lawyer, I think it could work.
0: Well, in my understanding, and again, we're just pulling this from a listserv just as something to – chat about. My understanding, though, is his plan is not to publish this publicly for any potential client, but instead to offer it essentially after the fact to the clients who he has already been working with and wants to retain for decades, not just for the next case.
1: Right. And so they will already know um, what he charges and what he thinks he's worth, at least.
0: Right. Presumably they will have already paid at least one of his invoices in the past.
1: You know, this makes me think a lot about Matt Homan's uh, pay-what-you-like invoice. Uh, I know Aaron's not giving a blank invoice, but he's, my understanding was his idea is he will let them change the number at the end of the invoice,
0: right? But my understanding is his proposal is that when he sends an invoice to someone who he wants to offer this guarantee to, that the wording of the guarantee will be, if you don't find something on here reasonable, change it and pay that amount.
1: Look, so here's my thing. Like, This is the kind of thing where, whether or not it's a good idea, what's the worst that could happen, right? Like, So you try it with a couple of clients, you're like, hey, I'm gonna send you this satisfaction guaranteed invoice, uh, change it if you don't think I'm worth it. The, the worst thing that could happen is that you learn a lot about what your clients think your fees are worth the best thing that can happen is that you find out that your clients value you your work much more than you do. Um, so I think the downside is actually kind of an upside that you know if your client fills it in as like, I think you're worth 50 bucks an hour, then you gotta be like, oh crap, I gotta go back to the drawing board and figure out why my clients don't think I'm worth anything.
0: So to be clear, that isn't just a lesson in language. They would also be stiffing you potentially thousands of dollars for that month's invoice.
1: Uh, yeah, you could lose some real money on this, yeah. but but it, you could look at it another way that you're you're paying for a lesson in how you are packaging your services. So, you know, I I guess I, I I play pretty loose with things like that because I like to try experiments and see what happens. And this is the kind of thing where I would absolutely try this. I'd want to see what happens um, because I'd be really curious to see. What, where my clients valued my fees. You know, we did a post a, a while back. I mean, a couple of years back by um, a local attorney, Alex Bajwa, who for I think it was I don't know if it was a, several months, I think, decided to let his clients pay what they like. Um, and he's a family lawyer, I believe. And he was pretty astounded to find that many of them valued his services at or near uh, where he did, uh, which I think is a pretty valuable thing to find out. And I think Aaron is going to find out the same thing if he starts offering a satisfaction guarantee. I think he's got much lower risk because he's actually telling them what his he thinks his fees are worth, and I think most people are going to just default to okay, I'll just pay it. So, well,
0: and in his proposed guarantee language, it actually in a couple of different places says we want to we're doing this because we want to retain you for decades. The implication, of course, being that if you do crazy to, we'll let you pay that, but we're probably not going to want to have a decades long relationship. Right.
1: Yeah, I think so. So, you know, I, I think it's absolutely worth doing. Um, and it's the kind of thing where if you're, if you have a, a type of client that a, you've established the value of your services. So they're a good client and they're already on your radar as a good client. They've, they're used to paying you a certain amount and B like you, you want to find out what you're worth to them um yeah it's totally worth trying you're going to learn a ton at worst and at best um, you're going to have a client who's now really happy to pay your fee which most lawyers don't have people who are happy to pay their fees so if you well and
0: yeah i mean and beyond that the flip side of it of course is if you don't offer this guarantee and you have a client who doesn't want to pay their bill or wants to argue about a bill to deal with that way and most of the solutions to that are negotiating the bill down anyway or just not collecting from unhappy clients
1: yeah Uh, you may never even find out actually that they're unhappy so yeah I'd
0: try it All right. well there we go that's our first question (laughs) Uh, if anyone has a question for a future episode again you can email us at email at lawyerist.com Or on Twitter, you can use hashtag AskLawyerist. Uh, And if you ask a good question, we'll try to answer it in the podcast. So that is our first episode, Sam.
1: To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast you can also subscribe to the Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.